Welcome back to Radicalize Me, where I ask America's most effective activists how to make trouble the right way. I really appreciate you listening to my show. It's always a bit of a shot in the dark to start a podcast. You do a lot of prep work before you do a lot of prep work before releasing, and ultimately, you just never know if anybody's going to listen. Uh, I've had both. Wow, I can't believe a bunch of people actually listen to me talk about stuff. And wow, literally no one's interested. Okay, so if you are listening, I thank you for keeping me out of the dustbin of history. But of course, this show is less about me and more about my guests and the work they do. Today we have Nato Green on the show, a labor organizer based out in San Francisco. Uh, We connected at some point years ago through comedy and became Facebook friends without ever actually meeting in person or speaking until I asked him to do my podcast about a month ago. Uh, NATO makes his living as an organizer with the Service Employees International Union, advising and advocating for workers seeking to unionize their workplaces. You can find out more about that organization at seiu.org. As always, let me place us in time to ground ourselves amid Corona-palooza. I'm recording this intro in May 2020, and I spoke to NATO a few weeks ago on um, April 19th. I guess it's almost a month ago now. Today is actually May 13th, just under a week before the Massachusetts extended deadline for reopening by May 18th. I have to assume Charlie Baker will extend that date again. That's our governor. Uh, He's extended it twice so far, but I guess we'll find out. I'm aware that this is a complicated situation, and of course, all the governors are playing a delicate game with Trump and his fucking ego, but it really is fucking ridiculous. Massachusetts schools are closed for the rest of the academic year. They did that on April 21st, but they're still saying the rest of us are going back to work before the end of the academic year. Like, I don't have lungs. So not that we shouldn't close schools. We absolutely should. But the lack of consistency is really indicative of the utter failure of the U.S. and of each individual state to manage public health effectively. Policies have to make sense. Policies in any area have to solve a problem. This is why there's such a huge faction of Americans who think they know better than the experts. Because we have a system where the experts say, here's what we should do to solve the problem. And the leaders say, okay, how about we do 2% of that and you go fuck yourself? It's like every safety precaution is just a suggestion. We strongly recommend everyone wear a mask. Please practice social distancing, sir. Please, sir, please. They wouldn't even do a stay-at-home order in most places. In Massachusetts, we got shelter in place. Like it's a fucking thunderstorm or some shit. How about, here are some supplies, now go the fuck home and stay there or we're gonna have problems. We can't do that in the U.S. because everyone's John Wayne. I'm sorry, let me update that reference. Everyone is John McClane. I'm sorry, let me update that reference. Everyone is any given actor named Chris. And the whole point of this podcast is to give you actionable tasks to make change. So all I can say here is just demand to be kept up to date. Call your local officials and get on your boss's case. This is a big thing because a lot of us are at sort of the mercy of our employer, right? Get on your boss's case. Don't let them keep you in the dark. You have a right to know. All right. I know it's like it's scary when you rely on your job and everything. You know, don't be a, an asshole, but like everything's co- 
collapsing. That now is the time to be bold. So go like talk to your coworkers. Get everyone together. Go ask some questions, you know, make some requests. See where it gets you. Here's NATO Green. So what what are you doing right now in terms of um uh work or, or you know uh direct action stuff? Yeah, so my uh, I, I identify as the country's only semi-functional hybrid of comedian and union organizer, yeah. um, and so my day job is as a union organizer, um, and uh, and it's been bananas. I mean, I work with the the workers that I that I represent um, include uh, um, people who work for private nonprofit colleges at some some adjuncts. A couple schools, the the non faculty staff, like the IT people and the librarians or whatever, and <clears throat> two of the seven schools that I represent are threatening to close, and so we're like trying to fight to save the schools, um, and then others of the schools are you know looking at like no, no college in the country can project how many students they're going to have in the fall. So a lot of colleges are like laying people off or furloughing people. So we're fighting over that. And then I also work with um, public health workers. So particularly in the county public health system in, in Alameda County, which includes Oakland and Berkeley and places out there. um, We represent 3000 workers ranging from hospital janitors and food service up to nurses and nurse practitioners um, across up like, I think seven facility public health system, um, some big hospitals and other things too. And, um, you know, in that case, like no one is losing their jobs. It's the opposite. Every people are working, but their real concerns, as you've probably seen in the news about safety, um, and public health system is like underfunded anyway, because poor people are not profitable. Um, and so, and it, it's like our members have described coronavirus as a crisis on top of a crisis. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, because their patient population is um, uh, significantly, you know, they have, a, that's sort of where the, the people dealing with homelessness and mental illness and addiction go. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that our members have said is that your entire, like your, the healthcare system is all integrated, right? Like, you know, like even if you live in a mansion in a gated community, the virus doesn't know to stop and check in at the gate. Um, so it's like the, and what our members say is that your entire public health system is only as strong as the, as the least among us. Um, and so, um, it's been like, it's been pretty intense. Like, you know, we're like, I'm not allowed to, you know, go outside, but my members go to work. And so I'm like strapping into this mobile command center where you see me here yeah. and like coaching people about how to shout at their boss, you know, in the unit about like adequate safety supplies. Wow. Um, that's awesome. So, uh, I didn't know you were a union organizer and, um, I guess some, my understanding is there's like a, a few like bigger, umbrella union groups and then there's like smaller local organizations or is any like like is yours or like any local um union 
group like associated with one, with one of those bigger ones or is it? Yeah. So the, um, so the union that I work for is the service employees international union, which is one of the bigger, biggest unions in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and SEIU has, uh, significant membership in the public sector, in healthcare, and in what they call building services, which is janitors and security guards. Um, uh, the legend that I always heard is that, is that like there are union locals around the country and that, and that the origins of SEIU were in, were in the Al Capone mob in Chicago. Um, that SEIU local one was a building services local in Chicago where uh like the capone mob would steer contracts to their friends their friends like janitorial companies or whatever um so the local that i work for um is uh local 10 to 1 and um we are we have sixty-five thousand members all across northern california from san francisco up to the oregon border and east up into the you know almost to the nevada state line um, mostly local governments. So like cities, counties, public health systems, local transit agencies, the, the non-teachers in school districts, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, through some weird twists and turns, we ended up representing um, a bunch of uh, nonprofit workers that, whose funding came, came through local governments. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we, you know, but we're, it's it, like nationally, there's this sort of stereotype that when you think of a union, the typical union member, you think of like a burly white guy in the Midwest working in a factory. And that's not true anymore. Um, now in the United States, the typical union member is a woman of color in California. Wow. Um, so uh, uh, we're right in the midst of that. Yeah. Um... What, so how did you get into that line of work? Like what, what was uh, your path into that? Um, well, I was, uh, you know, I, I, when I was in college, I like got politicized like a lot of people mm-hmm. and um, started thinking about social change and, um, and, uh, and I, and, you know, at the time, I'm, I'm 45. So I got out of college in 97, which is relevant because in 1995 was the first contested election for president of the AFL-CIO. And so there was this like big sort of renaissance of union activity in the late nineties and, and through, through the, um, the Clinton years of like all these things to recruit young people into the labor movement. And I was sort of part of that wave, but the thing that I wanted to do was organize young people, which no one was doing. So um, I got a job at a bagel shop and organized a union there and got fired. Um, And then I got a job as a messenger, as a car messenger, and organized a union of biking car messengers and was a working messenger for three or four years. And then we won our union and then I sort of came up the ranks of the union I w- was the international longshore and warehouse union. So, um, we were, uh, uh, I'm a technically a card carrying longshoreman, although I've set foot on the docks all of three times in my life. But, um, uh, so they, so we organized biking car messengers into the IWU and then 
I raised a bunch of foundation money to start a worker center to organize young workers in San Francisco. And that organization, Young Workers United, still exists today, you know, 18 years later. Yeah, I think, I, I think I've heard of that. Um, yeah. Uh, we, we were the country's first worker center to organize young and immigrant workers in the low-wage service sector. And in some ways, you see the 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 sort of distant aftershocks of it. Like I was, I worked on the first local minimum wage campaign in 2003 and paid sick days. A lot of stuff that ended up going on to be models for the entire country. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and partly it's like we won, we won, you know, public policies that raise wages for the lowest paid people all over the country. But um, we also changed the way that we people talk about it because when I started organizing young people, the way that they taught young workers, the way that they're talking about minimum wage was, um, we don't like that. There was this myth of the affluent young person in the workforce, you know, like, right. like, uh, you know, we don't need to raise the minimum wage because it's just for like middle-class white kids who are like working to buy, you know, for money for CDs. That was sort of the way people talked about it. And like, we really pushed on that of like, no, actually young people are also fucking broke, you know? Um, and they're working cause they need the money. The, um, and that, like, it, I mean, it took a while, but we ultimately, like, peop, you don't hear those arguments anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, at least, like, not that they're taken seriously in most places. Um, yeah, so when you unionized uh, your workplaces early on, um, what, what are kind of the first few steps you took? Because I think, um, you know, I think I'll, there's a good number of people, and this is sort of what, you know, gave me the idea for this podcast it was like i think there's a lot of people who would like to be more you know politically active but don't know what else to do besides vote and yell at each other so like right. i'm wondering like um what yeah like how you would lay out like what what were the steps that you took or what or that, or that someone else can take in their workplace yeah i mean the well so you know one i mean the, I strongly recommend anyone organizing their job who can do so. Um, and if you're in a union, get involved in your union because it like, you know, there are a lot of people in the labor movement who came to it as activists and not having lived through the experience of being a worker themselves yeah. who organized a union at their job. And that experience, it like, it changed my brain. You know, when I was working as a messenger, we were working 12, 14, 16 hour days with no overtime. We weren't getting minimum wage. Our trucks were unsafe. We never got lunch breaks and we organized a union and we struck and we won the right to a lunch break. And the feeling of sitting down to eat, eat lunch, like to eat the lunch that I won for myself, yeah. it, it was not, it didn't come down. It didn't get handed down from the law. It right. wasn't out of the benevolence of my boss. We won, I won the right to eat lunch and that feeling was so satisfying and I, it's sort of, there's no going back. Um, similarly, the feeling of like, you know, the, the, the bill of rights stops when you clock into work. Uh, there are, you have no free speech at work. Yeah. Um, you were at, when you were at work, you were in a dictatorship and, um, the fear of like having to confront your own boss, um, is also, uh, and then overcoming that fear with your coworkers and winning is also something that never goes away. Um, so the first, the first thing when, like, if you have a job and you want to organize your job, um, 
the first thing is to like take stock of, is to analyze everyone who works with you. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, when people call me up and say, Hey, I want to organize a union at my whatever. The first thing that I say is get me an employee roster, you know, find a schedule or a phone list or whatever, just so that we have a list of like, how many people are we talking about and who's, you know, um, and then, and what, what kinds of jobs do they do? And do they all have the same issues? And then the next thing is who are the natural leaders? And so one of the things that happens when you organize a union is, um, there are some people who are like the most disgruntled who are the, like, uh, and the most pissed off or have the biggest gripes. Um, and those are not necessarily the people who are going to be the best union leaders. The people who are going to be the best union leaders are the people who are respected by their coworkers. And there's always somebody who is like, you know, the person it's like when you go to go into any workplace and you're like, who's the person that everyone else asks for advice? Who's sort of the social hub of this workplace? Um, and there's, you know, in every unit, there'll be a few different people. Um, uh, and, um, uh, you know, and then, and then figure out what it, you know, really focusing on getting those people involved is like, um, and understanding what are their, what's their resistance about. That's like the whole thing. Um, and then, you know, and then you, then it's like, what's the, um, there's a bunch of legal steps. Like you have to sign union cards and you turn in those cards, to the national labor relations board, which is federal part of the federal government and the NLRB schedules an election and the, you know, there is a multi-billion dollar industry of union busting consultants that will try to slow you down yeah. and can tie you up in court. And so partly, you know, it's, um, the other big thing that needs to happen is to think about how you're going to use power. Um, like I am, you know, I think that there's a lot of like, particularly there's a lot of liberals who get very anxious about power. They think power is what the, what the right wing does. Right. And it's like, I'm obsessed with power. Power is the only way working people, working class people can change their lives. Yeah, it's the and, only way anything changes. Yeah. And so it's like, how do we, you know, if, when I'm working with, you know, and like, as I am lately, you know, nurses and social workers and respiratory therapists who work <clears throat> in a public hospital, <clears throat> helping them think about how they use the power they have to achieve their goals is like, that's the whole job. Um, and then there's also a question about like, what, what, what the union is like, you know, we're in a moment where something like 90% of the workforce is unionized. And so if you have a job that like, you know, if you work in a non-union hospital, there are unions that are organizing hospitals. If you work at a non-union hotel, there are unions that are organizing hotels, but there are lots of jobs where there aren't that many unions organizing. And then it's sort of a different conversation. Um, so, like, the first thing is, is there a union that sort of has interest in this group of workers and has a track record of working with those workers? And how do you, you know, and if there are multiple unions, how do you pick, right? Um, and then then the next question is, if there's no union, then what do you do? And there's been this sort of proliferation of, like, new forms of, or- of worker organization. Like, you know, people, like, 
over the years, like the communications workers, which historically has mainly represented the phone company, um, has sort of chartered these like affiliated organizations to organize within the tech industry yeah. and programmers. Um, you know, and like in the context of, of comedy, the Writers Guild East and the, and the communications workers and um, IATSE are all doing different pieces of organizing within new media or digital media. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that stuff is super important. Um, uh, you know, so there's like, there's lots of, and there's people trying to figure out how to organize gig workers, even though they don't have the rights of employees. Right. So there's like all that kind of stuff happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. I, uh, you said early on in that answer that, um, you know, what you usually tell someone who's trying to start, uh, organizing their workplace. So is the first step to like contact someone in your position, like contact an organization? Um, yeah, yeah. The first step is, um, I just realized that my child had put her name on my zoom. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, I, you know, like generally people, you know, usually the first thing that they do is they call someone like me. And, and then the first thing that I say is, who do you think, who else do you think would be interested in this? Let's get together a secret meeting of those people to talk about what this process looks like. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and so then we have some secret meetings for a while of like, of getting people up to speed and talking about getting, getting workers, a group, a, a group of workers, um, to understand what the process is going to be like. We talk, we want to have a, a group of workers who represents a cross section of the workforce. So if it's like, you know, all the, if everyone who's involved in the organizing drive is white women and no one has talked to the people of color, then it's not going to work. Or if everyone who's involved in the organizing drive is from one department and no one has talked to the other department, then it's not going to work. Right. Like, mm -hmm. so you need to think about how you create your cross section of, of, people in what we would call an organizing committee that is res taking responsibility for having those secret conversations with their, with those coworkers. And then it's like this thing happens where, you know, you, we start getting people to sign union cards and, um, to authorize the, you know, say, I want to have a union in my workplace. And, um, and by law, you only need a third of the workforce to sign the union card to earth, I think 30% to have an election. Okay. But you, but you need to have fifty percent plus one of people voting to win the election. And once the boss starts on their union busting campaign, you it drops. And so we often don't want to file for a union election until we have like sixty or seventy percent of people have signed union cards. Right. And so it's you know once you start getting up towards sixty or seventy percent, at some point the boss finds out. Yeah. Um, and so then like. That's the other thing that, that happens is there's a phase in the org organizing process that we call inoculation where like where we want to prepare people for the there's because there's a, it's a there's a playbook right that bosses use to bust unions and we can we want to prepare people of like at some point this and this and this is going to happen like I used to tell people when I was when I was starting out that at some point right before the union election the highest ranking woman in the company would cry publicly. And people would be like, that's ridiculous. And then it <laughs> happened. And they'd be like, you're a prophet. You know, um, often you'll see companies come up with like anti-union swag. Um, so 
like I was in a in an organizing drive where they like printed custom labels on water bottle water bottles that said like it's clear on it's clear as water vote no on the union, and then they printed like chocolate coins like to look like gambling chips, right. and it would say like don't gamble with your future vote no on the union so that like that kind of stuff will happen, and then there'll be these captive audience meetings where they'll like pull people in one at a time, um, or in groups to like be inundated with anti union propaganda and the script is always the same and so you want to prepare people of like this is what they're going to say and this is what you're going to hear and yeah. you know um because at some point like before you get to 70 percent, the boss will find out and that stuff will start and so partly what you want to do is like um as soon as you're as soon as folks are inoculated and you have enough support you want to declare publicly right so you you want to go from being a secret organizing drive to a public organizing drive and will like you know, put out posters everywhere that say, with pictures of people saying, I'm part of the organizing committee and I'm committed to organizing my workplace because da-da-da-da-da. And that gives people extra legal protection, right? That organizing a union is a legally protected right. Yeah. Um, and so, but it only works if the boss knows that you're involved in organizing the union. So you have to tell them, hey, I'm involved in organizing the union. You can't fuck with me. Um, and so counterintuitively, like you actually have more legal protections, the more visible you are as a union supporter. Huh. Um, but it I'm is sorry, what, just one more thing about that, which is that like, you know, it's when, when you when we tell people you have a, a right that's protected by federal law to organize a union, people are like, oh, my God, I have a legal right to do this. The reality is that because of who runs the federal government, the National Labor Relations Board is not really that much protection. Yeah. But the person who trained me used to say, um, the law is the feather in Dumbo's cap that lets him think he can fly. Like, right. it's like, if you tell people that they have a legally protected right to go on strike, and then 100% of the workers go on strike, and it works, they'll be like, thank God the law worked. It wasn't about <laughs> the law. It was that uh, everybody like, there are lots of things that you you can't get away with if you do it by yourself, and you can get away with if you do it with everybody. Right. Um, so yeah, and in terms of uh, that that going public um, step is is kind of like down the line a little bit, right? So it's like you have more power uh, publicly being a part of the union organizing committee, but you kind of there's a few things you do before you reveal that. Is that Right. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and this the, the, this same process, I mean, is also true if you have a job that is already unionizing, is, is already unionized. Like, let's say you have, you know, there are lots of people that I run into who are like, have a job where there's already a union in their job, but they don't like their union. Yeah. Like, they're not going to run into the same kind of stuff about dealing with anti-union consultants and like, fake bottled water but this the process of organizing is the same like unions are you know at the end of the day unions are democratic organizations and that one of the dirty secrets of the labor movement that nobody wants you to know but i will tell you uh uh is that is that unions are democratic organizations but turnout in internal union elections is pretty low okay. so if you work for like if you work you know there are some you know if you work for a huge union that has a national contract, like, you know, the, you know, the T 
Teamsters at UPS, where it's like, you know, it's one contract that covers 200,000 people. That's like a little, that can be hard to turn because it's spread all over the country. But if you work for, you know, if your local is one, you know, if you're a public school teacher and you work in a school district, um, you know, it's not like if you're a halfway decent organizer and are good at this thing that I said of like being very methodical about, you know, I were, I'm a public school teacher. I think my union is, is lazy or not that effective. I want to take over my union local. I'm going to run for office in my union. So I'm going to get together a slate of people with, who with, of like-minded people to run for the executive board with me to take over the local. And then it's just math. Like how many school sites in the district, how many workers at each school site, what's my schedule for going around and talking to people at every school site so that I can win this election. And, um, and that's true of a lot of like, you know, a lot of the union locals that are where, you know, there, where there's a local structure. So that, yeah, I mean, even, you know, here's a, so, um, my, my wife, when we graduated, graduated from college, she had some, she had a job at the university of California, like a sort of like a admin assistant type job. And she went to one union meeting and so just based on, you know, she was like, I'm married to this guy who's a union guy, so I better go to the, be the go to the union meeting. And then she goes to the union meeting, and suddenly she's like getting involved in decision making. Um, you know, that most unions don't have enough people who want to participate, and that if you show up at all, it's pretty easy to like start influencing things. Yeah. Um, so, but the process of organizing is the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, going back to your point about um, kind of democratizing the workplace, um, that's something that I've, so I think it was Richard Wolf, the economist, um, I've heard talk about democratizing the workplace. He talks more about like sort of worker-owned collectives and like that being sort of an ideal. Is that like, um, is that realistic? Is that like, um, you know, to be desired or is like, unionizing is like most realistic and or like the best way to do it um uh yeah well i so i i actually have some experience with this so um uh we there there was a period of time um where like when i was organizing bike messengers and then when i was when and then when i was organizing young people where like nationally, there was this whole conversation about what they called worker center organizing or new forms of worker organizing, and there were attempts to create worker owned collectives. So, like we were, you know, we were getting exploited by these bike messenger companies, bike and car messenger companies. We organized a union, and then as part of that, what you know, those companies mostly imploded. But then uh, there are some worker owned messenger companies that still exist that came out of that. Um, and what we found pretty consistently across the country in the United States when people turned to worker ownership as, uh, as a strategy was that those approaches were successful at improving the working conditions of the people who worked for them, but they were not successful at changing the economy, the labor market for that group of workers as a whole. Okay. That it's like... You know, and you saw this like you, you know there was a there was a long period of time where there were people doing, um, 
you know, organizing of day laborers and domestic workers. And then they would try to come up with like worker owned um, landscaping companies or, you know, to to compete with the illegal employers uh, using day laborers. And again, you know, but it's like you're still you're still operating within an economy. And so you can raise labor standards for the people in the worker owned co- cooperative only to such some extent. And then as long as you still have all these shitty companies preying on the weak, right. you know, you're going to hit a ceiling. Otherwise you're going to lose business. So like, so partly I would say there's a, you know, it's valuable and it's, it, it appears to be a valuable strategy to like make the point that it doesn't have to be this way. Um, but it also doesn't appear to be scalable um, as something that can be used as a solution instead of unionization. Obviously, like I love that documentary, The Take, um, about Argentina. Um, there's also an incredible Mexican documentary that's not available in the United States called La Luz y la Fuerza about a group of public utility workers in Mexico City that ultimately turned part of the public utilities, the power system, into worker-owned uh, enterprise. Um, and so, you know, the other thing that I would say about it, and if I can, like, put on my communist book club hat for a second, um, uh, there is, you, it is not possible to develop class consciousness without class struggle. Um, so the, you know, the idea of like cooperatives or any other, like what some people talk about is prefigurative strategies or utopian strategies Mm -hmm. as a way of like creating some alternative model within the current system that's valuable and should be supported, but it's ultimately going to be limited because, uh, like we can't change the world without confronting power period. The end, that's always going to be true. Um, and there, as I said at the beginning, there is no substitute for workers fighting their own boss. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when, when it comes to unionizing, I would imagine, you know, I'll use myself as an example, might be risky to (laughs) record this and put it out, but, um, I, I would imagine a lot of people uh, maybe don't know like what industry they're technically in, and, like who they would go talk to if they wanted to unionize. Like I have been um, doing a bunch of research about unionizing my own workplace and it's sort of a weird amalgam of industries, I think, because it's uh, like I teach music but I'm not like a teacher. I'm not like, I don't work in a school. It's like an, you know, a, it's in a parking lot with a, a Planet Fitness and a Taekwondo place. Like it's sort of teaching, but it's sort of retail and it's sort of childcare, but I'm not like licensed for any of those things either. It's like right. a weird in between things. So like, would I go to a um, musician's union? Would I talk to a teacher's union? What's um Yeah, so I think that's a great question. So the um the um in, in the United States like un- union is defined in the law in a pretty narrow way, which is some it's it's about contracts. It's a contract between a group of workers in a workplace with their immediate employer. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we learned over the last generation, um, and that worked when you had like 
companies like General Motors that had, you know, a hundred thousand people in one factory. Um, and, um, one of the things that we've learned that's sort of evolved is like, we can be creative if we have workers that are ready to mobilize, um, we can be creative about what the form looks like. And so sometimes the, um, sometimes like you have a direct employer, but, um, uh, but the, the, it's like, where is the money? Right. So, so it's like, so partly we need to have an analysis of the economy. Like I work with some, in some cases where I work with nonprofit workers, um, uh, like at nonprofit social service agencies, like, you know, the workers will say, we're underpaid and we want to be paid more. And then I'll say that to the employer and the employer would say, I would love to pay you more, except most of my money comes from the county. You go get it from the county. You know, if you can convince the county to pay more for your salaries, I'll give that to you happily. So it's like, even though our employer and our contract is, you know, with the, it's like with a, with a direct employer, if the money's somewhere else, we need to figure out how to go get that money. Um, and by the way, like this is partly the, what's behind the demand around things like Medicare for all and other types of universal benefits is there's a way that like creating, you know, um, the, you know, the way that we would say it is, um, there's this, and, and, you know, Bernie Sanders talked about this some on the campaign trail, which I really appreciated is there is a model in other countries for what people talk about as sectoral bargaining, um, and, uh, to look at sectors as a whole. And so you're right. Like if you have a bunch of people who work in, you know, these small music instruction things, like taking a year to organize these tiny groups of workers is not like, we'll never see the results. On the other hand, if we have a bunch of them and can, um, bring them together to raise demands, you know, around healthcare for all those kinds of workers provided by the state and paid for through progressive taxation, then we have a quicker path to changing the material conditions of your life. Right. Yeah. So, so you're saying it's, it's, um, more of a fight outside of unionization or that that would be like the target of the unionization. Right. Well, it like, I mean, people, you know, people over the years, people ask me all the time about like, can, can comedians unionize? And to which I reply, that depends on what the goal is. Yeah. Um, you know, like how many, how much, how much of my stage time is like one-offs in bar with bar shows that are produced by another comedian where I get paid 20 bucks in tips. Like that's fine. But a, it's not like the comedian running that show is getting rich off of it. Right. And B, even if I could give that, get them to give me $25 in tips instead of $20 in tips, that's not change your life money. So in, in, in the part of the economy that we work in, what is the, like, where's the money, right? And that's why I think the stuff around unionizing new media is so important is, you know, de- like, like there's so much that still needs to be done as far as, like, expanding the coverage of the existing entertainment guilds to reality television and organizing in new media and creating portable benefits for freelancers. And, like, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that we could do um, to make life better for the comedians. But... Um, uh, you know, I don't, um, 
I don't get the sense that like, you know, I, like the, you know, as a comedian in San Francisco, I work, I, my home club is the punchline, which is part of live nation. Live nation is a national chain. They could probably afford to pay more than they do. But, yeah. uh, you know, in Boston, Rick Jenkins is just Rick Jenkins. Right. And it's not like, you know, maybe again, maybe he could afford to pay a little bit more, but it's not like he's, you know, whatever, like David Geffen. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So then I imagine like, you know, I work like the place I work at is, is a corporation that has, you know, locations everywhere. Um, so is that like, I would imagine the, with you know, if McDonald's workers are unionizing, they're, they're going after the, the headquarters. Right. right exactly. Like my manager is a manager, but you know, she's not really the, <laughs> the enemy, the buck doesn't stop with her. So. Exactly. And, you know, and again, if, if there are 30 outlets like the one that you work at in Massachusetts and you organize one of them, like it does nothing. Right. So there's not even a conversation to be had unless you organize all of them. Yeah. So, and that's why, you know, I think, I feel like the, the why I keep saying the job is, is to teach workers how to think about power. Right. Who yeah. has power? How do we get it? How do they use it? Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the uh, concerns I've had, you know, um, uh, the company I worked for was, you know, probably like most companies, they dragged their feet a little bit on like closing during co the COVID outbreak. And um, it was like, I, I, I almost felt lucky because I got pneumonia in the early half of March. So I was out of work anyway, at, right when I was like getting nervous about like, you know, going to work and catching something. I just had like unrelated pneumonia that got better. Um, and uh, I was worried though. I was like, they're not, they're not closing down. And, you know, eventually they were like, oh, we'll do online lessons. But like the staff is still going to come in and do the online lessons from the, you know, from the, the store. And it's like, um, that was driving me crazy a little bit. And so they finally closed down and everything. We're working online, but um, I'm like, every day I'm nervous that like they're going to tell us to come back when you know before we should. And and it's uh, it's something where I, I keep thinking to myself, no way am I going back before you know the World Health Organization says it's all good. And I'm just worried like everyone else will go back and <laughs> I'll just lose my job. So it's it's. Uh, uh, I, I, I see like the, the importance here that it's, it's really, um, you can't go it alone with this stuff. Yeah. And there's, there's this guy, there's a labor journalist on this website called payday report that's tracking COVID related strikes. Mm. Um, and since the, you know, of, of workers, I mean, exactly what you're describing, like, but in, in circumstances where workers have said, screw you, this isn't safe, we're going on strike. Yeah. Um, and there's been something like, you know, it's it's fast approaching 100 strikes in the last month around the country. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so is unionizing, I mean, um, is that, do you think like, mo like on the whole, people should like focus on that right now, given like, 
the, the current situation we're in, given like the general situation of um, this country, uh, or if not, what like what other forms of activism have you engaged in, and, and would you say that people should be doing right now? Um, yeah, I think um, you know I, I I used to have like very strong feelings when I was a younger person about like this is the only strategic thing you could be doing and anything else is indulgent. And I don't, I just don't feel that way anymore. Like, um, I think, you know, the most important thing about any kind of activism is that it be something that you feel like you can sustain for a long period of time. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, when I was starting out and I was thinking about getting a job in order to organize a union at that job, someone tried to convince me to go get a job at a Chinese-owned fish processing factory where the other workforce was all Chinese immigrants. And I was like, I don't think I can get that job, but even if I could get that job, like, that's not something that I can sustain. Like, I'm not that guy. Uh, (laughs) Even if it is the most revolutionary thing I could be doing. So, um, so, you know, I, I honestly, I think the most important thing is that people like that, you know, every, um, every successful political project involves a team of people thinking and dreaming together. Um, and so I think what people should do is figure out what, like, you know, who they, what community they want to be a part of and who they love and, you know, figure out how to plug into that. And I would love it to see more people coming into the labor movement and should do, and should do that. But I also think like, there's some incredible tenant organizing happening around the country and people organizing around evictions and rent control. And I think that's incredibly important. Um, and people organizing around, you know, public takeover of the utility system, um, and people organizing around immigrant rights and, uh, you know, driver's license for immigrants and closing the detention centers and, um, and the Black Lives Matter movement and climate change. Like, I think it's all, you know, it's all, there's incredible organizing across the spectrum. And, um, uh, you know, there's an existing structure in the labor movement. And so if you can figure out how to make it work, partly what's exciting about it is that we, there's like a level of scale that we can use that, that like, there's a lot of sort of tiny righteous activism can't get to that scale. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I'm not like, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not super dogmatic about it. Like I think people should, should, should go wherever feels like home to them. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, uh, labor organizing or anything else, these organizations like exist already. And I think, um, that's one thing that I, hope people take away from this show is that like yeah getting involved like a lot of times it it can really just start with like call them up and say hey what can i do like (laughs) here's what i already know how to do does that help you know um yeah i mean when i started out like when i got out of college and i was 22 and i moved home to san francisco where i'm from and i just started going to meetings for stuff and I like went to different meetings to check out what different groups were doing. And I went to rallies and then you start showing up and people invite you to some other thing. And I sort of eventually figured out my lane. Um, yeah. You know, I'm like, 
you know, at the time, it was this is the late nineties, I was going to, you know, Zapatista solidarity meetings and I was going to, you know, stop immigration raids meetings and I was going to um uh uh I was going to meetings for um you know a caucus of LGBTQ workers I- within unions and like I'm straight and it literally did not occur to me until I got to the meeting that I'd be the only straight person there. I was like, of course I like I want to support gay people in the labor movement. That seems like a good thing to do. And then everybody assumed that I was gay. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. (laughs) Um, So, you know, like I just, I went to a bunch of stuff and, you know, gradually figured out what, you know, where I wanted to focus. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've been doing now is, you know, especially I'm at home all the time. I can get on these Zoom calls with DSA or whatever group and just kind of see what's going on. Um, you know, I'm I'm on like email lists and I have been for a while, and it's easy to you know, just be like, I'll look at that later. So yeah, it's it's um that's a good approach, I think, is to just just start going and listening and seeing what's happening. Yeah, I mean the the other thing is that like you know the um the because there's so much shelter in place, we're in a period of like a need for a high level of creative creativity and flexibility in how we do, you know, we can't organize a rally with 20,000 people. Right. That's not allowed. So people are doing these like rolling protests where they have car caravans that drive around the target and honk. And, you know, they're doing socially distant candlelight vigils and like, you know, a lot of social media stuff. And, um, so, uh, there's a lot of that kind of stuff happening. Yeah. Yeah, which is great. You know, I, I'm 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 glad to see people at least getting to the point where they're like, okay, this has to change, though. <laughs> like, I think for for a long time, I think you know, most people I know are you know at least a little bit lefty minded, and they have the same issues with with anything political that I do. But you know, it's taken until now for a good portion of people to really say like oh yeah this is not <laughs> this is not a sustainable system that we have um and i yeah i just hope that ignites a little bit of action yeah i mean well you know trump has been like an incredible recruiter for social movements in a lot of ways um and you know the thing the thing like to watch out for is that you get these surges of of activity where people are like newly involved mm-hmm. and that at some point um that wave recedes yeah. and there's going to be some number of people who are involved now who are yearning for a return to, nor- to normalcy. And I just think that's not fucking on the table, especially with climate change. It's not on the table. Right. Um, and so we need people to like figure out how to get their heads around the idea that like whatever Trump broke, there's no going back. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, you know, the idea that like, I mean, this is, you know, the sort of the, dysfunction of the democratic party but the idea that we can return to the good old days of like biden clinton obama mm-hmm. you know john Kerry, like when the adults in the room were making serious decisions right. and yeah. we're that's that's not gonna that that's not possible or desirable right yeah because it, it's you know just like when people look back to the 50s and the mid 20th century prosperity and it's like it wasn't for everybody and it wasn't for everybody 15 years ago. It, you know, it's just, uh, um, it's it, now, now that everything's out in the open, we got, we got to like 
reassess and not, not say like, oh, that was good back then because I felt more comfortable. Um, right. It's it's a it's a whole thing. Um, what what are your thoughts on on uh, electoral stuff? Like, is it uh, useful? Is it you know anything that's going to get us anywhere, or is it you know are people wasting their time you know fighting over <laughs> voting for Biden or whatever? No, I mean, I, th I, I think electoral politics is incredibly important. Like if you are on the, you know, if, um, like I said, you know, if you're, if you have a analysis of power, like there's a way that I think Americans are weirdly, you know, particularly liberals and progressives are weirdly sentimental about politics. Like, you know, I just can't vote for someone who doesn't reflect my values. Like, yeah, it's just... I just can't bring myself to vote for what the fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> you know, this is a country built on genocide and slavery. Like, yeah, this is not the time to get precious about the system. <laughs> um, so, it, it um, so little time, like, like, right. Take me 10 minutes to go vote for Biden. Then I'll do other stuff. Yeah. So I think people need to not have illusions of what it's going to do. Um, right. but I also think that, you know, um, uh, well, I mean, I also think that, that, if you, you know, a few things, I think if you're someone whose politics are to the left of the Democratic Party, which mine are, um, then there's a bunch of shit that they know how to do that we need to know how to do. Like, like we need lots of people on the left who know how to, you know, cut up voter lists and like analyze polling data and run a direct mail campaign or whatever, you know, all that stuff. Like there, you don't get. Uh, you know, another 500 Ocasio-Cortezes, you know, running across the country successfully, unless you have a lot more people who learn just the technical skills of campaigning. Um, so we need lots of people to go into the Democratic Party and learn their shit so that we can take it out. Um, also, like, uh, you know, our, our job is to win people over. Um, and it's not surprising to me that, you know, um, a majority of, you know, that a majority of the Democratic voters were not ready to vote for socialism because people haven't talked to them about voting for socialism. Like, it's not, yeah. you know, you're not going to win people to your cause unless you organize them to come to your side. Yeah. Uh, so... I think that that's probably where, um, you know, I was a little more defensive about this during the, the primary and, and during the, you know, 2016 primary, but like, I think that is where this, this like Sanders camp fails a little bit is it's either we're too intense and just like, Hey, like, yeah, fuck all of you. We're going to like completely, completely redo the system. Or it's just not in, enough involvement to set, you know, to just explain to people like, here's why this would be a good thing. So, so partly it's like what, one of the, th one of the things that I've been doing for year, for several years now is I raise money for something called the movement voter project, mm. um, which is like, like, I don't like giving money to either democratic party or or candidates mm. movement voter project moves money directly. Like there's no, not consultants. It's not mail or advertising. It's directly into funding organizers in underrepresented communities in strategic locations being run through like existing grassroots organizations that are organizing for long-term change. So like there are these groups like, you know, so they're, so they get sort of a, like a multiplier effect where the movement voter project 
seeded, for example, um, campus-based organizing in Virginia in the run-up to the 2017 special election that was the election that elected Governor Northam and brought the Virginia state legislature almost to a tie and um, and led to higher youth voter turnout in a 2017 special election than for Clinton in 2016 because they were running it through these campus, existing campus-based organizations that then turned around and fought for and won Medicaid expansion in the state of Virginia. Um, you know, so it's not just like, we're going to, you know, give money to Joe Biden and let him set the money on fire. And then whatever happens, happens. We want to give the money to groups like, you know, new Florida majority and the Texas organizing project and, um, the Puente movement in Arizona and a bunch of existing grassroots groups that are fighting around, uh, a transformational agenda in communities of color and working class communities. Um, and that, that I think is super exciting. Yeah, that's really cool. And do, so do those organizations, um, are you saying they, they use that money to fund, um, candidates who are sympathetic to this stuff, or is it more like, uh, you know, just pushing whoever's in office? The second one, I mean, mostly they don't care that much about candidates. You know, I mean, they end up with like, you know, Carlos Garcia of the Puente movement ended up getting elected to the Phoenix City Council. Um, and so, you know, gradually people end up getting running for office. Um, but, uh, you know, really it's about, it's not about candidates, it's about building the agenda. Right. And on the idea that like, if you're trying to get Latinos to vote in Arizona, it's going to have, it's going to you know, it's going to help elect Democrats and it's also going to help move public policy that affects um, Latinos in Arizona positively. Yeah. Yeah. That's been my sneaking suspicion for a while now. Just like, I, I think, you know, it's probably a better chance with, with Biden in there. So again, you make that, that decision that takes very little time. And then, and then it's just, you know, it's going to be hard either way. Then you just go and, and, uh, start organizations like that or, or, you know, do whatever else to, to try to make these things happen, regardless of who's going to win in, in November. Right. And, and I also think that the, you know, if you look at like the Obama's second term in particular, there was a bunch of stuff. I mean, not just a second term, actually, you know, now everything is about like stopping the worst things that Trump is doing. And the idea of like positive change is not on the table. But if you look at the, you know, the movements that developed during Obama, Occupy Wall Street, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, stuff around climate change, stuff around gay marriage, people were pushing for, you know, the, the, the DACA program that, that having every significant bit of progressive policy that came out of Obama's office was in response to social movements, um, putting pressure, you know, sustained strategic militant pressure on, um, whether it was, you know, whatever happened with the, you know, everything that happened with the climate accords and DACA and drilling in the Arctic and, um, on and on and on, it was all in response to protest. And so to some extent, I feel like, you know, the idea of voting for me is not, I'm voting to, so that I don't have to uh, so that I don't have to protest. I'm voting to pick who I want to protest, right. you know? Yeah. And, and I think, <laughs> I think I could, you know, I think I, I will be able to get more of what I want out of protesting Biden than protesting Trump. 
yeah yeah it's, it's not going to be a perfect situation but yeah um there's not much to be gained by sitting out of that part of the process and i think that feeling comes from you know people not being aware of just all this other movement stuff going on um so they feel like man we didn't like win the election thing so <laughs> that's it <laughs> kind of lose hope after that um so yeah, I think this is all just really important for people to know. Um, yeah, I don't think people should drop everything else that we're doing and just do electoral work, but right. um, I think you need to figure out how to integrate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I, th I think we, we got some good stuff today that will uh, help people take those steps. Um, we're about at an hour, um, but I realized I, I, I'm interested in how you got started in comedy too. Oh, uh, yes, sure. Um, I went to college in Portland, Oregon. I went to Reed College, and one of my um, uh, like I, growing up in San Francisco, there was a lot of comedy around. Yeah. Um, you know, we had at the, when I was a kid, we had five full time comedy clubs in San Francisco, um, seven night a week clubs. Like we had. Lo a local comedy sh showcase show on our local public television network. Um, and so there were all these people who went on to become, you know, famous comedians who were just like kicking around San Francisco. Um, yeah. uh, you know, Robin Williams and Bobcat Goldthwait and Ellen DeGeneres and Mark Maron and Dana Gould and Margaret Cho and, yeah. um, uh, and Patton Oswalt and on and on and on. And, um, and so I was like a comedy fan as a kid. And then when I was in college, one of my best friend's dad was the manager of a comedy club in Seattle. And so I did some open mics up there, ate it. I was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like, I think I got the first time I did an open mic in a comedy club was the closest I've ever gotten to literally shitting my pants. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then, you know, I did it a couple times, was not good at it and then set it aside for several years. And then at like, 30 came back to it and was like, I had some headspace and, um, was like, I just felt like I had the itch and I went down to the local open mic and I did a set and, uh, again, it was traumatic. Um, but pretty quickly, like within a few months, I, um, I, it was like, it, something clicked for me. Like it, I felt like I had come home. Um, it was being a comedian and being part of the world of comedians was the first time in my life that I didn't feel like I was crazy most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and there are all these awesome people around that I like became, you know, um, when I started the other comedians who were like climbing the ladder with me, either right after me or right ahead of me were, you know, or a little bit ahead of me. So, <clears throat> um, you know, we're, Ali Wong and Moshe Kasher and W. Kamau Bell and um, Sheng Wang and Hassan Minaj and Chris Garcia and Nico Santos and, you know, and Brent Weinbach um, and <clears throat> um, whole, just a whole heap of amazing people. And, um, and so, you know, it was like a really, the, you know, 2005, was when I started and that period, the late aughts, uh, was really an amazing time to be a comedian in San Francisco. Yeah. That's awesome. 
it's it's good to know it didn't click for you until you were 30. I, I just turned 31. I've been doing it on and off since I was like 17. And uh, yeah, it's it's like, um, I, I guess my, my 20s were just, you know, crazy like anyone's. And it was like, could never like stay in it or out of it very long. <laughs> so it was just like, a lot of back and forth, but yeah, I'm I'm happy to be in Boston right now. I think it's a it's a really cool place for comedy. I came through a couple of years ago and had a great time. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know that for, it's like I um uh you know when I was in my twenties, I was just too like you know you, as a comedian, you have to eat it for a while before you get good. Yeah, and I just was not confident enough to be able to do that. Yeah, um, I couldn't take it. And so, so, you know, starting at 30 meant that I like started, uh, you know, I was older than a lot of the other people coming up with me, but it also meant that, um, it also meant that I like had a fully cooked point of view. Um, and, uh, and at some point, like I just, I really, like I stopped caring about, you know, uh, thinking about whether or not I was going to make it, um, you know, and whether I was going to be successful or famous or, you know, whatever. And. I was just like made peace with the fact that okay, I'm 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 just a guy who speaks into the microphone, right? <laughs> and that that's a thing that I know about myself, and whatever else happens with that is like goes where it goes, but it's out of my hands. Yeah, yeah, I definitely feel that now. I uh, you know started doing the mics and stuff last year, and um, I 2018 was my last year in Philly, and it was it was a rough year for a bunch of reasons, and I. Did, pretty much didn't do stand up at all. And I went back to it um, last year. Uh, I'm married. I'm, you know, in my 30s. Um, and it's it's exactly what you're saying. You know, you just go up and it's like, yeah, I'm I'm confident in what I'm saying. So you know, it's probably going to go better. And if it doesn't, I I just don't care. I'm going I'm going home. I got this life going on outside of this, and I see 23 year olds. Um, you know, getting drunk and tearing their hair out. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's how it felt back then. <laughs> right. So my, what, I have, I have 11 year old twins Yeah. and one of them was making fun of me the other day. It was, it was so funny to me. They were saying like, you know, uh, I think it's, they go, I think it's funny. A funny thing about comedians is how you say something that you think is a joke and then you wait and make a dumb face when you're waiting for people to laugh. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's called timing. That's, yeah. that's how the audience knows when it's time to laugh. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's so funny. The things kids will notice. Um, yeah. I watched a couple of your clips though. I, I, I like, um, I really like your political stuff. Um, how do you feel? Is it, did you always um, talk about politics on stage? Do you think that, that, you know, comedy and politics inform each other in important ways or how do you approach that? Um, well, so I, when I was in middle school, my grandfather who was in Chicago started every week, he would collect political cartoons mm -hmm. and mail me a packet of political cartoons. And then we would spend time on the phone discussing them. <laughs> um, and so, you know, from my earliest memory, like I have no awareness of thinking about politics separate from thinking about making fun of politics. Yeah. Um, and um, the, 
you know, I started comedy in the summer of 2005, and that summer ended with Hurricane Katrina, and I was trying to do, like, you know, dick jokes and whatever else bullshit, and then the hurricane happened, and I got really upset, and I wrote, and I was heading to the open mic, and I wrote five minutes of jokes about why I was upset about Hurricane Katrina, and it was the first time I really got laughs, and I was like, oh, this is what I do, um, yeah. and it made sense, like, I'm an activist, um, and you know, occasionally, like, I I, ha- I want to write about other stuff, but it's sort of, it's just not me. Like, <laughs> you know, um, nobody, like, what I have to bring to the table about, you know, jokes about, I don't know, like, whatever's on Netflix, just, like, it's not interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and, I mean, that's also what my audience is interested in, like, Right. You know, people who come to see me live are like, we want to hear what NATO has to say now. Right. Um, so the, you know, we want to hear some shit. Um, and so, you know, I've fortunately been able to cultivate that, certainly in the Bay Area. And um, so, you know, I, I feel like that's my duty to serve is to keep writing that kind of that kind of material. That's yeah. that's sort of what's in my in my wheelhouse. I like silliness. I love silliness. Mm. Um, but I sort of end up like, you know, building it into sketches or scripts or other things and not like the key spine of my comedy, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That I strongly identify with that. The first comedian I really cared about was George Carlin. And then I went to like Lewis Black, um, little like, Chris Rock, I did. I can't remember, you know, all of the ones I was listening to then. But like, yeah, George Carlin was was the whole thing to me, and it was it. Like, I could never disentangle politics from comedy, just like you're saying. Um, so yeah, and that's something that you know, I I tried to do right away, and no one listens to you when you're 17. So that's another thing. A decade on is like, <laughs> it's uh, it's a little easier to. Um, you know, present those points of view. Yeah. It's also, I mean, it's all for, honestly, it's also easier if you dress up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if you're just another dude in a jean and a hoodie, yeah. the audience is going to be like, why aren't you talking about weed and games, you know, or whatever. Right. Um, and, um, I, you know, I like it. Like, like I like that challenge when I'm on a showcase and people are drinking and every other comic is doing dick jokes and I have to like drag people into my worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, and I can be pretty candid, you know, I will be blunt with the audience. Like I'm here for 10 minutes in 10 minutes. Somebody else is going to talk about their dick again, yeah. but now we're, now we're going to talk about ideas. Um, so there was 10 years ago, W. Kamau Bell and I went on this tour with uh, Janine Brito and we, we showed that like in, we had like a, a like a pre-show tape that, that we ran um, before we went out and we showed that there's this incredible clip of Bill Hicks being interviewed for the BBC at the Hollywood Improv. <laughs> um, and, and he, you know, and he says, um, and he said, and people, he said, he's talking about, you know, people say, I didn't come to the comedy show to think. Yeah. And he goes, well, where do you go to think? We can, we don't have to do this here. Like, yeah, I'll let and, you there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And I was like, that's the whole thing. That's, that's the job. Yeah. 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 It really is. The the best is like, I've gone on shows where like, you know, the host is some tough guy comic and um, I'll, you know, I'll come off stage and he's like, dude, when you started bringing up like black lives matter or whatever, I was ready to like make fun of you (laughs) after your set. (laughs) And then you like, you crushed it because you like, play this game where you kind of like make people uncomfortable, but then you bring them in and, and make them understand. Um, yeah, it's, that's the most fun I have on stage too. Um, yeah, that, that, that's all I've got. Unless there's uh, anything you wanted to add. Uh, I have two albums out wherever comedy can be streamed or downloaded. Um, uh, the, the NATO green party is my first album and the whiteness album is my second album. So please check that out. Follow me on Twitter at NATO green, Instagram, Mr. NATO green. And I'm also a regular co-host of the bugle podcast and the last post podcast. Nice. All right. Thanks so much for taking the time, man. You bet. Thank you. I will, um, put your, um, uh, email address in the chat. Uh, and then I will, we transfer you this audio file. Awesome. Thank you. Sure. All right. There it is. <laughs>